Senator Ted Cruz has a new book out about taking America back from the woke Marxists. He's here in studio to lay it all out. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. He's a man who needs no introduction, the oft-memed and definitely highly intelligent Senator Ted Cruz. Senator, how are you? James, I'm doing terrific. Good to be with you. Well, you look great. We talked a little bit in the pre-show. You said we're in a target-rich environment, despite the fact that we are uh, apparently headed to hell in something resembling a handbasket. What is the target, and how do we hit it? Look, the, the, the world has gone nuts right now, and I, and I share the fury and rage so many millions of Americans have as we look at what's going on in our country, as we look at the direction everything is going, and that's really what, the, what this new book that I just wrote is all about. Uh, the book is entitled Unwoke, How to Defeat Cultural Marxism in America. And, and what the book endeavors to do is really two things. First of all, to explain how the radical left seized the major institutions of our nation. So each chapter of the book addresses a different institution. Uh, Chapter one starts with universities, and I call universities the Wuhan lab of the woke virus. <laughs> that's where it was invented. That's where it mutated. That's where it spread. From universities, the book then goes on to, to, to go into K through 12 education. From there to journalism. From there to government. From there to big business. Then big tech. Then entertainment, Hollywood, TV, movies, sports, music. From there to science and the politicization of science. And the final chapter is on China. And, and, and what I explain is how China is a central thread interwoven with all of those institutions. And this book ende endeavors to, number one, explain how and why the radical left sees these institutions from inside. And then number two, even more significantly, it, it lays out a clear, practical battle plan to take these institutions back. Well, the usual talk show host will wait until the end to whip the book out, but you mentioned it. You, you read the title. Here it is, Ted Cruz, Unwoke. Go get it. You know where to find it. Um, let's dig into it then. Okay, yeah. so the universities and Marxism. Uh, the the Wokies like to go all the way back to 1619. Right. They say, look, you got to go all the way back to find the root of all evil. Um, does it stop with, uh, with Marxists and the universities? Do we have to wind it back a little bit before that? How do we wind up in a place where the universities got so bad? Well, look, I, I trace the history, and if you look at, at Karl Marx and the origins of, of Marxism, so Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, in which he laid out his worldview that society is inevitably a conflict, and it's a conflict between oppressors and victims. And, and Marx viewed things in socioeconomic terms, so the oppressors were the owners of capital, and the victims were the proletariat, the working men and women. And the solution that Marx advocated for was the violent revolution of the proletariat, forcibly overthrowing their oppressors and using government power to forcibly redistribute wealth from the oppressors to the victims. And I describe how in the 1960s and the 1970s, Marxists began infiltrating universities and, and they began coming in. 
They became tenured professors. They became uh, university administrators. And once they were there, we saw Marxism begin to mutate. And it mutated into multiple different forms. But one of the first you made reference to just there is critical race theory. Critical race theory uses that same Marxist frame of oppressors and victims, but instead of focusing on socioeconomics, it focused obsessively on race. And it views America as irredeemably racist, and it divides us into oppressor races and victim races. And again, the solution it advocates is the violent revolution of the victim races to use government power to redistribute from the oppressors to the victims. From there, it's transmogrified along the lines of gender and sexual orientation and gender identity. And what we've seen now is is that, you know, I think 20, 30 years ago when there was political correctness uh, in the universities. And at the time, it seemed kind of silly. It almost seemed cute. I mean, it was it was, you know, strange things about semantics that you couldn't refer to a manhole cover. You had to call it a personhole cover. And it was just idiotic. But it seemed relatively harmless at the time. Well, I think it has proven not harmless because what happened then is is these young graduates who've been indoctrinated went off into each and every institution and began what the Marxist scholars called the long, slow march through the institutions, which sadly we're seeing the fruits of today. Well, I think your your word that you're using here, mutation, is absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's been fascinating to see. You go back to Marx. One of his big criticisms of capitalism, and this is something that sometimes is even picked up, as you know, by, by some of our guys on the right who are like, well, he has a point. He said, all that is solid melts into air. And to watch that process kind of happen to Marxism itself, where it starts out being very materialist, very much about like, no, we're literally taking these factories away from these people, giving them to these people. And it started to move through, well, where do you find the oppression? Well, now you're finding it in the culture. Well, now you're finding it in ideas. Now you're finding it in words. You're finding it in symbols. And the way that, that Marxism has been sort of dematerialized to the point where the the big controversies, you know, the big fights on the internet, it's really almost a a, a claim of like a telepathic spiritual attack. You used the wrong name for me. You used the wrong word for me. You characterized my identity in the wrong way. You are harming me physically. Um, how much further is this going to get in the direction of spiritual warfare? Well, look, one of the things to understand is, is Marxism in theory and Marxism in application have always been wildly different. In theory, you have scholars gazing at their navel and, and hypothesizing that, that we will all come together and live communally as one. That has never, ever, ever happened when Marxism gets actually applied with real human beings. Every Marxist country on earth is oppressive and dictatorial, and they practice murder and torture and oppression. Listen, I think Marxism is the most evil doctrine mankind has ever invented. It is responsible for more murder and death and suffering and poverty than any economic or political philosophy we have ever known. And inevitably, Marxism is a justification for those who are in power to maintain absolute power and to ruthlessly crush anyone who dares oppose them. It's worth remembering, look, Marxist countries, the rulers live as billionaires. In, in, in Cuba, the Castros were billionaires. Putin, Putin may be the richest man on planet Earth. Communism works very, very well 
to justify absolute dictatorial power. And, and when it comes to conversations, when it comes to universities, when it comes to big business, when it comes to institutions, Marxism relies on force and coercion because its ideas are not persuasive. Look, if Marxism could win on the merits of an argument, it wouldn't have to silence its critics. It wouldn't have to try to punish or crush or cancel or disappear its critics. It is because they know you cannot defend such a failed doctrine that they rely on force. And, and to give an example that we're seeing right now of what, of what the book on Woke is all about. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a very successful tech entrepreneur uh, from Silicon Valley, uh, who's a man of the left, he's a Democrat. And he was expressing bewilderment at the rabid anti-Semitism we're seeing on the left, whether it is the vicious anti-Semitism of the squad in the House of Representatives, or the horrific anti-Israel and anti-Semitic protests and threats we're seeing on university campuses across the country. And he was saying, where did this come from? And, and, and what, I, what I explained to him, I said, listen, to, to, the, to the radical left, they have coded Jews as oppressors. And they have coded Palestinians as victims. And accordingly, the cultural Marxists, the solution they support is the violent revolution of the so-called victims against the so-called oppressors. And it's why you see leftists celebrating horrific atrocities by Hamas terrorists. It's why you see 35 student groups at Harvard, my alma mater, signing an idiotic, ignorant, and racist statement that says that all of the violence, all of the atrocities from Hamas, every civilian murdered, every woman and little girl raped, every infant slaughtered, all of that is 100% the fault of Israel. That is the result of this doctrine. You know, it really is unconscionable what's going on. I mean, this is Western civilization. Like, we're supposed to be able to, to critique and criticize each other. We're all grown-ups here. But what you're talking about is just, you see it just slip the chain. And there's no end in sight. I mean, this is going to keep going uh, unless there's some, some kind of pushback. But I think what you, what you mentioned, where there's this longing, this, uh, this deep-seated longing for this kind of utopia, for everyone to come together, inhabit the same community, share the same kind of ethos. I mean, to me, this is church envy. You know, they're really just trying to replace... Uh, replace a church. Um, and because of that deep-seated longing, you know, all that doctrine, all the, the apparently rational argument, you get Das Kapital, you these thick volumes, it really isn't convincing. And it's really not there to be convincing because it's all about this sort of spiritual desire. I mean, I'm a political theory guy. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite riffs on Marx is, you know, it's not just Marx. And some people do. They look at Marx and they go, oh, Jewish guy, that's the root of the problem. It wasn't just Marx. It, he was a heretical Jewish guy. He also had a partner, Engels. He was a heretical Protestant guy. Engels, almost like the classic hipster nowadays, you know, sort of like good-looking young guy, wealthy parents. They were worried yeah, about bankrolled him. Bankrolled Marx. They, yeah, they bankrolled Marx. Without Engels, Marx. there's no Marx. No, no. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. Engels sort of sitting up in a, in a house somewhere writing his fan fiction as his wealthy parents bankroll. I mean, some of this stuff has been going on for a long time. Do you think that it's essential in pushing back here that we need a sort of spiritual renewal or spiritual revival in America? Look, I, I think America desperately needs a spiritual revival. And, and I pray for that. I hope for that. Listen, the church needs to be active and engaged. You know my father, Rafael Cruz. He's a pastor, lives up here in North Texas. My, my father uh, has a, a ministry in particular to other pastors. And, and he travels around Texas. He travels around the country preaching to pastors and, and urging them 
to, to get engaged in, in public affairs, to speak out, to not be silent and timid and scared. And, and, and so many pastors are afraid of offending anyone in their congregation. And, and they end up from the pulpit just, just preaching milquetoast uh, truisms that offend nobody. And, and look, I got to say, if, if you're a pastor and, and what you say on Sunday morning offends nobody, you're doing it wrong. That's not how Jesus did it. When, when he was flipping over the, the, the tables of the money changers in, in, in the temple, he, he offended a lot of people because the truth is intolerable to those who are spreading lies. And we live in a world that is surrounded by lies. So I absolutely pray for a revival. And, you know, you mentioned about, about the spiritual component of Marxism. Look, today's left, it is very much a religion. And, and you look at today, particularly young people. Listen, I think all human beings long to live for something greater than themselves. I think that is a fundamental human desire. And, and for much of human history, it was filled by faith. It was filled by God and, 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 a, and a relationship with God. Today, particularly for, for much of the modern left, in their mind, they've killed God. There is no faith. And, and so either wokeism uh, or radical environmentalism, depending on how they're wired, or both, fill that void where they are living for something larger than themselves. I think it is also important to understand, and it's something I talk about a lot in the book on woke, Marxists always, always start with the kids. The, the book opens with, with telling my father's story. So, as you know, my dad is from Cuba. Uh, he was born and raised in Cuba. And as a teenager, he fought in the Cuban Revolution. He was 14 years old, fighting alongside Fidel Castro. And, and my dad was imprisoned. He was tortured in Cuba. He fled Cuba. He came to America. My aunt, and I tell her story as well, my tia Sonia, his younger sister, she was still there when Castro took over. She saw the atrocities Castro committed. She fought in the counter-revolution, and she was imprisoned and tortured by Castro's goons. And I tell the story of my grandmother, my abuela. Now, she was a sixth grade teacher in Cuba, and I remember when I was a little boy, she told me about when Castro came to power that he, one of the first things he did is he sent his army into the elementary schools. And the soldiers would come in to kindergartens and first grades. And they would tell all the students there, they'd say, close your eyes. Pray to God for candy. And all the kids would do so. And they'd open their eyes and there'd be no candy. And then the soldiers would tell the children, they'd say, close your eyes and pray to Fidel Castro for candy. And the kids would do so, and the soldiers would quietly slip a piece of candy on every child's desk. That's Marxism. That's who they are. They always, always, always start with the kids. They start with indoctrination. And at the heart of it is destroying any loyalty you might have to anything else, to God, to family, to anything other than the all-powerful state, because Marxism fundamentally is about power and an excuse for the rulers to have total power and total devotion over you. Your family story, so incredible, and tease this up 
the deep-seated desire to deliver the best of life without God at all, to banish God and say, no, we're the masters of justice. We're the masters of the good. We're the masters of preventing misfortunes from befalling you. This stuff goes really deep, and it does, it does amount to a religion. I try to think through, like, what is, what is wokeness really about? If it really is a religion, what is it worshiping? I think what it's worshiping is this idea of perfect justice, that you can have a perfect justice without God, without Christ, without any, anything other than just people trying really hard. They've tried, though. Marxism, you know, we're, we're going back quite a ways now at this point, mid-1800s. Failure, 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 failure. What's changed? Well, I think what's changed is technology. And now I think that these folks think, at last, we can build a supercomputer, we can use AI, we can nationalize the internet, and through the power of technology, we can finally achieve social credit, social justice, yep, yep. perfect justice. Well, and look, that's something I talk about a lot in the book. So, for example, the chapter on big tech, where big tech right now has a degree of power Listen, there's always been biased journalism. I mean, I mean, I, you know, from the very first journalist that was, you know, putting chicken scratch on a stone tablet, there was bias. What is different is that big tech has a monopoly power that William Randolph Hearst could only have dreamed about. You know, you look at the age of, of yellow journalism in, in America, and it, and it pales in comparison because big tech is ubiquitous. Social media... And, and, and the internet is how we get our information. It, it is the public square, and big tech has the power to silently, invisibly, number one, disappear views that they don't like, and no one can see it. There are no fingerprints. They simply cease to exist. Or, at the same time, they can elevate the views they want. They can create their world with complete monopoly power. Now, I mentioned that the book lays out strategies. How do we defeat cultural Marxism in America? Because I'm all about, if we don't take these institutions back, we will lose America. And, and James, I lay out three buckets of strategies to take the institutions back. Every chapter ends with how we fight back. Bucket one is sunshine and transparency. And, and it's worth noting, the ideas of the radical left, they're wildly unpopular. And so shining a light on them, exposing them, is a really powerful tool. So, for example, the chapter I have on K-12 through education, I talk about what happened in Loudoun County, Virginia, where a teenage girl was sexually assaulted by a boy wearing a skirt in the girl's bathroom. And the school district denied it happened, covered it up, because their political ideology mattered more to them than protecting their students. And in fact, they had the father of the girl arrested because he was fighting for justice. Well, as outrageous as that was, that sparked a fire. It enraged moms and dads across Virginia. In 2020, Virginia went for Biden by 10 points. And one year later in 2021, Virginia flipped red and elected Glenn Youngkin because moms in particular were ticked off and engaged. I'll tell you here in Texas, I, I engage in a lot of school board races. And we are seeing the power of parents with sunshine and transparency flipping school boards one after the other after the other. So that's one important bucket of tools. A second bucket of tools is changing the cost-benefit ledger for anyone thinking about going woke. And so, for example, in my chapter on big business, I talk about how it used to be rational for a 
an apolitical CEO to give in to the woke mob because the costs were relatively minor and the benefits were significant. They didn't come for you with, with, with pitchforks and torches and burn you down. So you just gave them what, what they wanted. And we saw that happen over and over again. Especially if the mob's inside the house. Yes, and that's, that's a huge part of the strategy is infiltrating every one of these institutions from inside. That's, that is absolutely the case. But I talk about in the book what happened with Bud Light and with Target that really changed the, the, the playing field, I believe. Both of them, they tried to jam their, their political ideology down the throats of their customers, and their customers were infuriated, and both lost tens of billions of dollars of market cap. And, and now, I think in corporate America, more and more, we've got people saying, I don't want to be another Bud Light. That's a good thing. And I talk about in the book, we need to increase the cost. We need to increase the deterrence to going down this road. And then the third bucket that I talk about is that conservatives and libertarians who've been successful in business need to invest in the organs of transmission of ideas. Go buy a radio station, go buy a TV station, buy a newspaper, buy a movie uh, studio, buy a book publishing house, buy a record label. And, and the example I use for this principally is Elon Musk's buying Twitter, which was the most important step for free speech in decades. Look, the blaze, everything here, it, this is part of how we retake media, is creating alternatives or coming in and taking over existing avenues. But we have to fight in the battleground of ideas. And for too long, conservatives haven't even shown up to the fight. For years, Hollywood has been lacking when it comes to stories of redemption. Movies and TV shows have trended toward the anti-hero, the flawed person who makes no effort to change and just becomes worse and worse as the story goes on. Well, here's some great news. The Blind, the true story of the Robertson family, is now available for purchase on Blaze TV. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe someone you love is in a dark place. Maybe all of the above. If you or someone you know feels beyond redemption, you need to watch this movie. You'll see there is always hope. Always. The Blind takes you on an incredible journey through the life of Phil Robertson, giving you an intimate look into the man behind the legend and the trials, the triumphs, and the values that have shaped him through the years. While The Blind wasn't a Blaze Media production, since Phil is such a big part of our Blaze TV family, we wanted to make sure you had the opportunity to stream it right here. Because it isn't ours, we can't include it as part of the subscription. But if you'd rather purchase it and stream it here instead of Apple and Amazon, we wanted to make sure the opportunity was there. Act now. Don't miss this opportunity to own The Blind, a Phil Robertson story on Blaze TV. Buy it today at blazetv.com slash theblind for $19.99. That's blazetv.com slash theblind. Let's talk a little bit more about tech and about yep. how to fix what's broken with yep. tech. Um, I have a book of my own. I've shown it on the show a couple times. The reason why I'm doing it again now is this book is on chain. It's on the Bitcoin blockchain, sold for Bitcoin on a site called Canonic. And, uh, and why did I do this? I did this because, you know, when you're talking about buy that radio station, buy that newspaper, whatever, what can an ordinary American people do? Everyone's not Elon Musk. Everyone yep. can't buy Twitter. What can they do to do the classic good old-fashioned American thing of rolling up your sleeves, putting your hands on your technology, having a confident, competent relationship mm. with fundamental digital right. technologies? I think they can do this with Bitcoin. That's why I did what I did with the book. You're a Bitcoin guy. You're a Bitcoin I, I supporter. Catch us up to speed 
on uh, what you think the potential of this technology is and how it's best used. Well, listen, I'm actually going from here to, to a blockchain uh, roundtable right after this. So there that's we go. the next thing I'm going to do. Look, I, I think the potential of Bitcoin and, and crypto writ more broadly is enormous. And, and I think it is about a lot of things, but it is about fundamentally financial independence. It, it, is, it is a monetary supply that is independent of government. And, and, and listen, there is a reason. If you look at who hates Bitcoin, it is the collectivists. Elizabeth Warren hates Bitcoin for the same reason that, that the Chinese communists hate Bitcoin. Because they can't control it and they want to control it. They want to control every aspect of your life and that includes your finances. You know, it's worth remembering that, that the first version of, of the Build Back Broke bill <laughs> that, that the Biden White House introduced included a requirement that your bank report to the federal government every single transaction you made in excess of $400. That means every mortgage payment, that means every rent payment, uh, that, that, that means every car payment in all likelihood. Heck, that's almost a, a tank of gas with today's inflation. I mean, they want total control for the same reason you talked about social credit scores in China because it is a way for the government to control every aspect of your life. Precisely what the collectivists hate about Bitcoin is what I love about it, is that I want decentralized money. I want decentralized power where there's not one decision maker in charge of it, but rather you, you, you have a decentralized ledger. That is enormous potency. I also think you see people moving to Bitcoin and moving to other cryptocurrencies in an era where politicians are debasing fiat currency, where they're just printing money, the inflation that we see today is directly connected to Democrats spending trillions and trillions of dollars we don't have and, and lessening the value of every dollar. And when that happens, people flee to, to more reliable stores of value. Sometimes that's gold, but you know people have referred to Bitcoin as digital gold, and I think that's one of the the real attractions of it. Well, yeah, it can work that way. It can work just so people can exchange and share goods and services without having to route everything through through the Borg. I mean, you look at what the Biden administration is doing across the board, whole, yep. of, whole yep. of society, whole of government, they're uh, all but nationalizing the internet. Yes. And if, if America stops at technology's edge, it's not America anymore. The executive orders, what they're doing at the FCC, I mean, at this point, it's, it's a laundry list. Can we get legislation if, if not at the federal level, at the state level, Texas is a big Bitcoin state. You know Texas yep. very well. Yep. Can we get that legislation to protect, secure Americans' fundamental rights to use these basic technologies? To mine Bitcoin, to use Bitcoin, uh, is, is that in the cards? So look, I hope so, but we're not going to get it as long as Joe Biden's in the White House. We're not going to get it as long as Chuck Schumer is the Senate Majority Leader. I think it's the right thing, and I think... As we get a growing constituency for it, it becomes more compelling politically. But, but the reality right now is the far left despises Bitcoin. I, you know, I talk to a lot of Bitcoin conferences, and it's interesting because a lot of the folks in the Bitcoin world, you know, there's some combination of apolitical, or if they have any political instincts, many of them were kind of Bernie bros. They're sort of, you know, lefty, socialism sounds cool, leave us alone. And they're now befuddled. Wait a second. What, why are the people we were supporting trying to destroy us? Yeah. And, and look, there's unfortunately a long history uh, of that, of 
cultural Marxists getting support from people they will come after and try to destroy. And, and so the Biden administration, I do not believe, is going to act to protect Bitcoin. I am, and, and when I talk to conferences, I will say the Bitcoin community has a bit of a utopian naivete, a sense of we are inevitable. Well, you know what? If you were a Chinese Bitcoin miner and you thought you were inevitable, you discovered the Chinese Communist government could ban it like that yep. and it disappeared. Yep. And, and the last I checked, most of us here don't have an El Salvadorian passport. <laughs> and, and what I tell, so, so when I talk to Bitcoin conferences, I ask them, I say, how many of y'all remember Napster? Remember Napster, the file sharing device for, for music? And it was taking off and it seemed inevitable. And then boom it was instantly killed. The one force strong enough to kill Bitcoin is the United States government coming after it. And that, I think, is a very real danger. You look at the Federal Reserve, which under the Biden administration, Janet Yellen is pressuring the Fed to issue a central bank digital currency. That is designed to destroy Bitcoin. Um, I'm leading the fight against it. I think it's a terrible idea. But there are very real risks of government acting to do enormous damage. And I think if you don't want that to happen, you need to engage. By the way, I would note my campaign website, tedcruz.org, 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 <laughs> uh, takes Bitcoin. So we take Bitcoin contributions. Uh, we welcome them. But I think the Bitcoin community needs to get much more engaged in public affairs to fight back against the regulatory assault that the left is, is mounting and is preparing to mount. And, and, and I think it has a potential to be really significant. Well, when I'm not on screen here, I'm behind the scenes doing my part to advance that as well. I think this is for all the marbles. And I, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything more important that you can be leading on right now. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, we got a, a few minutes left. I want to talk about China. You mentioned China. There's a China part in the book. Um, Silicon Valley, for those of us who are, uh, are, are born and raised Californians or raised Californians, at least in my case, the spectacle of, uh, of San Francisco welcoming G and company. You got the, the banners, you got all the homeless people miraculously disappeared off the streets. I mean, it was almost like a little taste of communism, yep. uh, really a, a huge taste, even, even by uh, San Francisco Bay Area standards, a huge big dollop of, of communism served right up. Does Silicon Valley have a China problem? A massive China problem. And, and, and that's why the book on Woke, the last chapter is on China. It explains how today's Democrat Party is structurally pro-China. And the reason for that is all of their key stakeholders are in bed with China. Big business, big tech, big universities, big Hollywood, all of them are in bed with China. And I discuss on, on issue after issue after issue how China is, is underlying it all. You look at the utter hypocrisy of the radical left. Listen, San Francisco, the Democrat leaders there have told the people of San Francisco, there's nothing we can do about homelessness. There's nothing we can do about criminals on the street. There's nothing we can do about people injecting heroin just in public parks. There's nothing we can do about people defecating on the sidewalks. I mean, they literally have an app in San Francisco called Poop Finder to report human feces on the street. You don't need an app to find the poop in San Francisco. I, you, you don't. <laughs> but the amazing thing is, so for years they said, there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do about it. Our hands are tied. Our hands are tied. And then suddenly she comes in from China and boom, yeah. they clear everyone out. 
They, they, they literally clean the crap off the streets. They get rid of the homeless people, get rid of the criminals. It's all sparkling. And they do it for the head of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, that makes that, you know, I really do wonder if kind of lefty San Francisco residents are sitting there wondering, hey, wait a second. Why do they do this for she, but not for me? Do, do I not matter? Do my kids not matter? Does my safety not matter? I don't know how many of them will think that. And I got to say, the collectivist high mentality tries to prevent them from thinking that. But, but there are moments like this that, that, that cause people to realize that what they're seeing is corrupt. Look, COVID and the lockdowns opened a lot of people's eyes. And, and so I want to say in our last, last few minutes, the book right now, Unwoke, it's in every bookstore in America. It's on Amazon.com. It's on Barnes & Noble. It's on Books A Million. It has skyrocketed up the bestseller list. I, I want to encourage you, go online right now, buy a copy for yourself. It's fun. It's interesting. It's readable. It's not an abstract academic tone. It, it, it is filled with real stories and also real practical steps you can use to fight back. But I also want to mention Christmas is right around the corner. This book makes, a, I think, a terrific Christmas gift. So, so get a copy for your mom. Get a copy for your best friend. Get a copy for your crazy left-wing neighbor <laughs> to try to bludgeon some sense into him. Or even better, get a copy for your kids or for your grandkids so that they can understand the garbage that the left is trying to indoctrinate them with. I wrote this book to be a tool, part of how we fight back. This book is designed to be part of how we fight back by giving people the, 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 the information for you to be able to fight back in your own life and for all of us to fight to take these institutions back. Well, it's a, it's a resounding call to action, and I thank you for that. Um, I almost forgot. There is one other thing that's right around the corner, which I, I want to be sure that we hit on. There's a presidential election yes. on the horizon. I noticed. Uh, a lot of Americans <laughs> sort of scratching their heads right now, watching uh, the spectacle play out. Uh, obviously, uh, so much at stake. Yeah. Uh, do you have some guidance for, for people on, on how to approach this? <sighs> Look, it's a mess. Um, on... The Republican primary, I'm staying out of it. I, I am You're not going to jump in? I, I, I am not. <laughs> I, I, I am Switzerland in this race. Whoever the Republican nominee is, I will support enthusiastically. And, and I got to say, the, the path we're on, the, the, Joe Biden's record is a train wreck. It has been, it, it's actually shocking how extreme this administration has been. You know, when the people of Texas first elected me to the Senate 11 years ago, when I showed up in Washington, there was such a thing as moderate Democrats. They yeah. existed. They don't exist anymore. The party has been utterly radicalized. That's one of the things I talk about in the book Unwoke is Donald Trump broke the Democrat Party. They hate him so much that it shattered their brains and it drove them to the radical left. The same thing happened to journalism. And so the chapter on journalism, I describe how how the corporate media, they despise Donald Trump. They are motivated by fury, and it, and it caused them to abandon any pretense of a mission to be fair or impartial or to be journalists. They view their role now as propagandists, as advocates, as defenders of democracy, which for them means advocating not just for the Democrats, but for the left wing of the Democrat Party. That is an incredibly dangerous thing. And, and so my hope is a year from now, 
we see a resounding Republican victory. I don't know if that'll happen, though. We are a divided country, and every one of these institutions is all in to continuing the control of the radical left of our government. And so we are fighting a, a, a massive force on the other side. And, and the solution, I think, is engaging and empowering and educating individual citizens to speak out and use their voice to, 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 to change the path we're on. Well, I think that's very well said. The timing is perfect for this book. I think you're right. We're terribly divided. Uh, some of that is just the nature of the beast, but uh, people really do need to sort of recognize what the stakes are, uh, what they're doing to us technologically, uh, what they're doing to us with the institutions. Um, in, in the absence of that kind of resounding political victory, which a lot of people are rooting for, uh, to my mind, most important things, that spiritual renaissance that we yeah. talked about and that Bitcoin-led renaissance where Americans can not only get their hands back on their technology, but infuse it with a kind of spiritual authority that makes sure that this stuff doesn't go off the rails without turning it all over to the government. We can't trust power to, to take care of these tools and make sure they don't turn against yeah. us. So in the meantime, Ted Cruz, thank you so much for coming by. We wish you the best and hope to see you again soon. Thank you, James. Very much appreciate it. That is literally all the time that we've got. So if you want to see more great content just like this, go to Blaze TV and subscribe. My name is James Polis. You can rate and review wherever you get your podcast. The show is Zero Hour. I'll see you next time. And until then, may God have mercy on us all.